Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Anxiety Rx podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Russ Kennedy, a medical doctor who suffered from crippling anxiety for many years and finally found his way out through the help of different somatic healing. And today I have Dr. Scott Lyons with me, holistic psychologist, mind-body medicine specialist, somatic. I, I was talking to you earlier. It's like, it's going to take me half an hour just to, <laughs> to reel off all your credits here. But he's written a book that I've, I've been through twice now and I love called Addicted to Drama, which is kind of like this Freudian repetition compulsion. Like what, what was uh, troubling for you as a child, you will unconsciously replicate as mm. an adult and do it you know, when you don't see it. So you just create the same thing over and over and over again. So welcome, Scott. It's great to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure to be here with you. Yeah. We chatted about three months ago and I was like, oh, so what have you been doing the last sort of three months or so? Oh, you know, this and that and stirring up trouble wherever I can. Yeah. Uh, I've been working on a big project with my colleagues uh, in San Diego for a big project in San Diego with Dr. Gabramate and Nice. Peter, Dr. Peter Levine, Dr. Bessel Vandercock, and a couple other somatic colleagues really looking mm -hmm. at doing a deep dive and looking at what is the arc of healing, knowing that there is no one universalized approach to healing, but how do you create some type of pathway at the same time that, that holds everyone's uniqueness within it? So we've been really exploring that together. Yeah, what I'm seeing a lot is, you know, there's no healing without safety. Like your brain mm -hmm. can't come into this sort of glutaminergic growth phase I without this feeling of that. safety, <laughs> without this feeling of safety. So, yeah. you know, we see most, you know, psychologists, psychiatrists, whatever, if you go in there uh, and talk to them, it's like, well, my wife's driving me crazy or yeah. my partner's driving me crazy. And it's it's not about what it's about, really. Mm -hmm. You know, it's about these things from our childhood and, and it just sort of, it just comes out of us and yeah. we don't even see it. We're, we have such a blind spot for it that we keep replicating our past. Yeah. And I think that in that replication, there is a certain familiarity often with chaos and your book yeah. kind of, you know, touches on that a lot. So if your gravitational field pulls you towards chaos, it's going to be very difficult for you to heal. Yeah. I, I mean, and, and this is an interesting thing because it's like chaos is the natural order of life, right? Mm. It's like from a philosophical perspective or a quantum, you know, or from a physics perspective, it, it is all randomized chaos. And, you know, a lot of what we've done in our lives is try to put order and organization into it. And the intolerance for that sometimes is anxiety. And at the same time, that there are certain individuals that are so it's it's their DNA. It's what the mm. ecosystem that they grew up in, for example, that got internalized into them, that became their sense of pacing for life, for example. And and suddenly that's who they become. That's who they are. They crave the familiarness of that, whether it's the the way that their parents were in that chaotic way, that dramatic way that is exaggerated and intensified that inability to be regulated. And, you know, one of the things I often say to people is like, you know, you're around someone who's addicted to drama when instead of attuning into your regulation, they pull you into their dysregulation. Mm. Yeah. 
And we all yeah. know those people. We all know that. I was just thinking, it's like I, I went through like five of them in my mind, like like the Terminator. You know, it's like these are the people that do that to me. And because I'm a people pleaser, and you know, as a physician for many years, it was like my, you know, my compulsion is to heal, to help, to that kind of thing. And then, and so of course, I'm going to attract people into my life that need need help. Mm-hmm. And it took me a long time to sort of start setting those boundaries. Like this is yeah. not helping me. You yeah, know, that's a, and that's why I burned out of medicine too, because yeah. it was so pharmaceutically driven mm-hmm. that we would go in and sort of okay, well, this is your problem. This is mm-hmm. a medication that will actually numb your symptoms. But yeah. what if the symptoms are from a deeper underlying this repetition compulsion in your life, and yeah. we're just basically kind of treading water like we're throwing you a life preserver in the middle of the ocean but you're still in the freaking middle of the ocean yeah right yeah so this there's is, a, you know one of the things that i hard props yeah you know like i just gotta say for yeah. those of us who've done it it's just like oh yeah ah, it's um you know and and i i remember when i was writing this book too and i was talking to a friend of mine who's an er doctor and he's like oh that's me and he just said it so, so easily mm-hmm. and i was like what do you mean that's you he was like, why do you think I chose emergency medicine? It's exciting. And the moment you get home, you're bored. And I was like, oh yeah. my gosh. <laughs> and you don't have to get too connected to your patients too in Emerge. Mm. That's what I, I found for Emerge yeah. docs, like the ones that I went through med school with. They yeah. were like, they're very good technically. And they're very genuine people. It's not like yeah. they're, but it just, they crave that kind of like instant hit. Okay, this is good. Okay, move on. And then we got yeah. to kind of go from there. And just getting back to what we were saying earlier, like I have this little saying that, you know, we equate familiarity with security in childhood. Mm-hmm. And if you yeah. grew up in a dysfunctional home, mm-hmm. the word familiar can be broken down into two words, family and liar, because your family mm-hmm. lies to you as to what's safe. And then you will, you will look for that quote unquote safety for the rest yeah. of your life. And often the relationships you get into are basically a recapitulation of that chaos, that energy, that that thing where when you're smitten with someone, it's like, oh my God, you know? And one of the <laughs> things I say is, you know, sometimes you're, if you have childhood trauma, you know, your soulmate can become your cellmate because, mm. you know, you're, you're clicked into this thing and you're, it's the charge that people get. And when people come in and say, oh, I've just met the, my soulmate, it's like, okay, well, be careful. <laughs> be careful because they're going to yeah. light up your old patterns. I call that red flag couture. Mm, that were nice. you know that were chasing the trauma tingles as and and not really discerning between you know the 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 chemistry the excitement that actually needs time yeah. versus what trauma tingles are is like it's the excitement that you become kind of dissociated from like you you're not able to stay in the vulnerability of it and you're so attached and attuned and magnetized to that trauma bonding or what I more refer to as drama bonding than yeah. trauma bonding because trauma bonding is like, we all do it. You know, oh, sure. we, I think it's actually a very normal thing to do. We know that pain is a social glue. We know that people connect and bond just as much through love as they do through pain. You know, and there's a lot of interesting research about it, like one that came, uh, a study that came out of Australia that showed that there were two groups of college students and the ones that dunk their hand in ice cold water and it, you know, just enough to sting mm. versus the group that just had tepid water. 
the group that had the pain response bonded much quicker and were more efficient in their group work. And so, I mean, that's just one study, but it's interesting. So we, we, we bond, we bond over our shared pain experiences because that's the way we feel seen and heard. Drama bonding is when we don't just bond over the connection of experience, but we also start to like amp each other up. We throw mm. logs on each other's activation fire of stress. And, and, and so we're accumulating stress as opposed to bonding over shared experience. That's trauma bonding. Yeah, and I think there is an element of trauma bonding in even healthy relationships, sure. right? Like yeah. it, it just it's part of it. And I think that's part of the excitement. And you know, <laughs> almost from a like a philosophical place, like we come we don't come together by accident. You know, we come together. Now, the thing is, if you keep picking the same partner with a different haircut over and over and over again, after a while, you're like, oh, okay, I don't really know if I want to do it. But also something you said earlier there was, was that the trauma tingles, is that akin to your concept of revving? Oh, yeah, it could be. I never thought about it like that. So revving is the sort of activation, this, that first start of like getting the energy up to go into more of the cathartic drama explosion. And it's it's a way of like, you know, you see when people crisis hop, when they go from one mm. negative story or one issue to the next issue, they're revving themselves up. Or, you know, there's lots of different types of revving, but like one of my favorite that I used to do was called binds. Rev, like, and it's like, this is actually something a client came in and said one time, but I'll, I'm going to borrow it. And she was like, my house is a mess. And I was like, well, okay, let's process that. She was like, no, 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 my house is a mess and I need to hire a cleaner. I'm like, okay, well, should we break down the steps of that to help? No, 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 you don't understand. I, my house is a mess. I need to hire a cleaner. But if I hire a cleaner, it means I'm lazy. I'm like, okay, so should we look at the history of late? No, no, you don't understand. I need to hire yeah. a cleaner. If I hire a cleaner, it means I'm lazy. If I don't hire it, it means my house will stay a mess. And they're in this bind. They're in this loop that they can never break out of. And it keeps stirring them inside. So it literally keeps, you know, like pumping the cortisol through. And that's and that's what activation is. I think trauma tingles is more of a magnetism. Hmm. It's like, ooh, I'm sexually attracted to dot, dot, dot. This person is so great dot, dot, dot. But really, it's a magnetism towards the familiar ache, the familiar patterns. And that's the sort of like, that's the difference between revving, I think, and the sort of the internal magnetism that happens in trauma tingles. Yeah. And there, that, because I have this theory that basically yeah. we hold trauma in our body, which I'm not going to get an yeah. argument from you about. And, and, <laughs> no. and, and what we do as children is the only place we have to go is our head. The mm -hmm. only place we have to go is distraction, rumination, this mm -hmm. kind of stuff. So we rev mm -hmm. ourselves and then we don't want to stay in that emotional vortex or that, exactly. that trauma, the trauma vortex. So we go into our heads and we mm -hmm. distract and we overthink and then we get, mm -hmm. we get locked into our addictions. Because mm -hmm. to me, I think, you know, addictions are basically just an unholistic way of feeling pleasure that we will allow. We won't allow like holistic love because that wasn't mm -hmm. safe when we were mm -hmm. younger, but we will allow, you know, feeling of taking an opiate or mm -hmm. taking a drug mm -hmm. or going on the internet or whatever it is. We'll allow that 
but we won't allow the holistic thing. So it becomes this poor cousin. And this is what I, one of the reasons I think that the benzodiazepines are so so popular for anxiety is they allow people to actually feel safe. They actually allow them to feel connected to themselves. And it's no wonder that they're they're so addictive because it's the only way they kind of allow themselves to feel that that and that was the case with me. The only mm. the only thing that the only way I would allow myself to feel that warm, comfortable connection was through a medication of some kind. And mm. then, you know, I mean I've been taking medications for years and years now, but I remember what it was like. And then it was like when I, I heard people describing heroin, it's like, it's kind of like a warm hug from your mom, you know, mm. it's like, okay, well, that's the substitute. So it's like allowing yourself. And I think that's where addictions kind of come from in a way is that oh, they're yeah. self-soothing and Gabor talks about that too. Yeah. Yeah. That they fill in the void, often the void of that co-regulation, that, that connection that feels safe and sound. And, and so, yeah, so why not go into something that sort of substitutes? And that's what stress does. It yeah. literally substitutes a lot of what we don't have or a, lo a lack of safety. And, and if you're listening to this and you're going, wait, why would we become attached or dependent on stress to feel better? You're asking the right question. And if mm. you're puzzled, let's break it down. So... <laughs> Stress does things that we don't typically hear about. When you think of stress, you typically think of the big bag monster in the closet, the thing that makes you sick. And that's pretty much somewhat true, but not really. It, it, it's not stressors that make us sick because stressor just means stimuli, mm. right? And so it's like, if you're getting sick from every stimuli, that has more to do about your inability to metabolize, to regulate, and to have boundaries than anything else. But stress, does very interesting things. So stress, for example, is a pain reliever. It actually blocks the pain receptors, the neuroreceptors. So if you're if you're like a little confused by this, I'll break it down a little further. <laughs> so mm. if you've ever gone for a run and you've had that endorphic high, and you're like, okay, part of that endorphic high is because it hurts to run. Mm. And it is harsh on the body. We're talking like major weight forces that you are putting on your gentle, fragile ligaments and bones, my friends. And so your body is brilliant enough. You are brilliant enough to release a lot of endorphins, which is essentially blocking the pain receptors. When you are in a state of stress, it is like running. When you are running, it is a state of stress. Let me put it that way. Mm. You are re releasing endorphins that block pain receptors. The two most significant natural pain relievers that we produce in our body are from love and pain. So we're going to become addicted to things that help us relieve the pain or block the pain. So stress does that. It gives us energy. The first stage of a stress response is this big boost, like drinking a cup of coffee and then another cup of coffee. And it's like, if you are feeling the malaise of life, if you are feeling like run down by life, damn, that's going to feel really good to mm. finally feel some sense of energy. And it's free. You can get it wherever you want just by creating a little stress response. I mean, those two alone, let alone the fact that stress is a social glue. We bond through pain. We bond through stress. And, and lo when love and, hurts, that's, that's <laughs> double. You get double whammy yeah, there, you know? Yeah. 
When love hurts, why would we turn to love? Right. When love doesn't feel safe as the pain reliever, we only have one more option to go. Mm. Yeah, when I, when I look at the neurology, uh, neurolo neurology? <laughs> neurology of this, you know, <laughs> basically the periaqueductal gray in the brainstem secretes endo and endorphins and encephalins. Yeah. And so when, when it anticipates pain, even emotional pain, mm -hmm. it fires same, same. that up. It fires up yep. your norepinephrine, norepinephrine, it fires up the anterior cingulate, the amygdala, the mm -hmm. insula. And I believe that the insula is going to show us a lot in the coming years as far as in, uh, neuroscience goes. I think the insula yeah. actually creates an emotional signature of pain in our bodies that gets replicated. So for me, I have this purple, hot, red, painful pressure in my solar plexus that presses, presses up on my heart and presses into my, my spine. And that is a remnant of my younger self. Mm. That is the part of me that needs the healing. That's the somatic mm. reference point that I, that I find in my body. And that's what allowed me to heal from chronic anxiety was finding that, seeing it was my younger self, and then seeing, hearing, loving, and protecting that yeah. younger version of me. And mm. through other things, cognitive stuff as well. But in general, it was like finding this place in my body. And yeah. LSD showed it to me when I was, you know, 10 years ago, mm. that this, this, your anxiety isn't in your mind at all. Mm -hmm. It's basically this, this state of alarm that's mm -hmm. stuck in your body. And unless you actually deal with that, mm -hmm. you're always going to be chasing your worries. You're always going to be in this sort of defensive adaptation state where mm -hmm. you're never really feeling calm or peaceful because as a child, I couldn't trust calm and peace. So mm -hmm. when I got into it, I, it would create this alarm in me. So it was finding the root cause of that in my yeah. body, in my soma, and going, okay, how do I, how do I fix this? So how, how do we heal? Like, that's what we started off with. But so how do we heal? Well, I think, I mean, healing is such a complex concept. Yes. And it's like, you know, it, it, I, was, I was on a, a, a panel the other day talking about this, which I really appreciated because it's like, I, I think, it, it it healing is not just universal mm. <laughs> and yeah. healing comes from the word also remembering like to wholeness and remembering and and so it's like remembering our wholeness the th and recognizing the things that have gotten in the way or veiled that and there's some concepts of of healing that is like we fragment out like we know trauma is fragmenting it mm. fragments memory it fragments body body to body connection and so there's this idea that is healing putting the puzzle pieces back together? Is that what healing is? Mm. Meaning we were not whole and we're putting ourselves back into wholeness or we have always been whole, but there are things in the way of us experiencing them. Right. And that's a very philosophical mm -hmm. difference. And it means that there are different pathways of healing. Yeah, I, I come back to Dan Siegel's concept of integration, you know, taking mm -hmm. disparate parts that mm -hmm. are kind of all over and they're not linked together and pulling them into a functional whole again. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of like when I have this thing of healing, because I, I say that I've healed my anxiety. Mm -hmm. And it's basically what it is, is that I see my worries as something that aren't me, that mm -hmm. I just, I see them and I, and I see the seduction to 
to believing them, to go into mm. them, to getting the hit, the, you know, mm. the dopamine hit through the nucleus accumbens, like you're on the right track. You know, <laughs> this pain in your gut is actually cancer. It's not just, you know, some reflux. Yeah. You know, you're on the right track. So you get this dopamine hit and, and worrying, I think, is a way of making the uncertain a little more certain. Mm -hmm. And I think so many of us had such trouble with uncertainty when we were younger and just had no power over it. So we will do anything to mm -hmm. avoid uncertainty. And worrying is one of the ways we avoid uncertainty. Also, it pulls us into our heads and it pulls us out of that, that place in our body that just really hurts. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, one of my oldest definitions I've used for anxiety is anxiety is the intolerance for the known and the unknown. Mm -hmm. And specifically the unknown. I mean, you know, we know that one of the things that allows for that secure attachment, that sense of safety in ourselves that allows us to be here in the present moment and grounded and connected to other people. One of the ingredients for that with a caregiver is consistency. Mm. Now it goes back to this <clears throat> because consistency doesn't mean all the time, but enough. And here's the complicated thing is like, we can be consistent enough because when we go back to the idea that everything, the, the natural order of the world, the universe is chaos and chaos is not necessarily predictable and predictable and consistency are not necessarily the same thing. And that's an important discernment in mm. being a caregiver. It's like, um, I always come back and we repair. We can't guarantee what's going to be the, the rupture, but that's my consistency. And, it, and it, even the rupture, one, one time it's, you know, a pattern might create a rupture and another time it might not. That's the predictable nature, unpredictable nature of things. But the mm. consistency is the, the guarantee that no matter what, I will put in my effort to do the repair. And that's what we didn't get as children. I think mm -hmm. that's what we, mm -hmm. you know, when we were bullied, when we were, when we lost ourselves on some level and mm -hmm. our parents or caregivers weren't there to create the repair. Mm -hmm. You know, I was reading something the other day that said, you know, relationships that people that have fight and repair are much stronger than mm -hmm. relationships who don't fight, yeah. right? So, yeah. so it's, it's, it's that repair piece, I think, that we so missed as children. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, when you have trauma as a child, you kind of lose faith in the world at that mm -hmm. point. And then the natural corollary of that is that everything is up to you. Right, mm -hmm. as a you're seven, and everything is up to you. So of yeah. course you're going to develop, you know, anxiety, depression, OCD, all this sort of stuff that our kids are struggling with now, because yeah. you have to be able to have that security to know <laughs> that most of the time, not all of the time, because that's you know helicopter parents too. Like you don't want a parent that's always you know, like making sure that that nothing ever happens to you either. So that's no good either. But it's it's really, can you rest in the fact that that can you see the safety and safety? Because a mm. lot of us don't see the safety and safety and we get pulled back to the drama and mm -hmm. because it's familiar and yeah. because it creates all these um, chemicals in our brain. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Most of us are missing cues of safety because we're so fixated on mm. cues of danger. Right. And for understandably so, you know, especially if there wasn't the consistent present caregiver then it's us to uh, it's up to us to be the hyper vigilant protector of ourselves, yeah. and and that dual role 
as kids is splitting. Mm. And it, it's like we build into that capacity as adults if we have the caregiver who takes on that role and we get to be in the role of the child. And, and, and so if we have both between the caregiver and the child, that's where we get to as an adult or as a young, even an old teenager, young mm -hmm. adult, form what we call self-regulation. Yeah, I'm looking back at like Bruce Perry, who wrote a psychiatrist who wrote the book with Oprah, mm -hmm. What Happened to You? He mm -hmm. talks about the neurosequential model of healing. Mm -hmm. So your brainstem develops first. You know, it's interesting mm -hmm. the neural tube forms when we're mm -hmm. embryos. So what I find really interesting about that is that the, the external becomes the internal as, as the neural tube involutes and forms the brain and spinal cord what was actually touching the external is now becoming a representation of the external in the internal. So your brainstem, which controls your body, forms first. And if that forms in a milieu of, of unsafety, then your brainstem is kind of like this reactive, protective thing. And then your emotional brain kind of forms on top of that like a helmet. And then your cortex forms on top of that like a helmet. And each one of those, if you form the brainstem in fear, your emotional system will form in fear and then your cortex will form looking for fear so you you become this sort of you know fear detector <laughs> and you get seduced by fear because that's the way your brain was formed and to try and unlearn that and learn that safety is actually safe is i think one of the biggest challenges we have as as physicians healers psychologists psychiatrists and it's it's not easy and it and it can't be done cognitively alone now i'm going to push back a little on that good great you know as someone who spent many many years studying embryology great as a main focus i i think it's a little simple to be honest oh of course and it, and i say simple because of this because any listener who might be hearing that going is going to say oh my god of course there was some fear and my environment or of course there was some fear during that like very you know during the nine months of gestation gestation sure you know whatever and it's like okay but there might have also been moments of happiness and and the the neural tube imaginating or whatever it, it was also also incorporated that so it's it's very unlikely that the entire gestation period and and the the you know the total symphony of development was only having one cascade of emotion, and you know I, and so I want to be really clear because one thing we can do is internalize the simplicity of it and go oh my god I'm fucked oh my god my mom had some fear or the sure. you know like the environment wasn't as safe and therefore that and and start to rev ourselves up with the narrative of that, because it's something we also can't control or can, or typically change our embryological development process. I mean, I think we can, but <laughs> that's up for debate between uh, somatic therapists even. Yeah. I mean, I, I was more referring to like, if your mother is in a chronic state of stress. I, and I will push back on that too. Yeah, yeah. I, as a psychologist as well, have never met someone that is constantly just in global activation. I think it's no. a, like we, we overgeneralize too much. And then we put this sort of like blame cycle on a parent 
And mom, yes, there are lots of people living in poverty and, and other social implications and challenges that make it an unideal environment. However, that does not describe their capacity and resilience within themselves. And so it just is more nuanced than simply like someone who is quote unquote chronic stress. I, you know, I, I just get a little nervous about making us making globalized statements because that can be the narrative to which we use to rev ourselves up and away from kind of being true and present with like, oh, I have some anxiety. How do I be with that as opposed to the narrative that my this parent fucked me yeah. up in this embryological stage? Sure. No, I agree with that. I agree yeah. with that. I think it's more of a risk factor than mm -hmm. sort of fait accompli. I think that it's just, yeah. it's a risk factor in that, you know, the people that I deal with specifically mm -hmm. are, are anxious people. Sure. And I look back into their history and I look back into that. And, and I guess what I'm reassured by is that, yeah. you know, your genetics and your environment don't necessarily, aren't necessarily a fait accompli, but your mm -hmm. prefrontal cortex, as it develops, has the least genetic influence. Mm -hmm. So yeah. it's the most, it's, it's the most pliable mm -hmm. within your experience. So you can yeah. change your experience yeah. and change your prefrontal cortex and, yeah. and learn new glutaminergic projections, learn mm -hmm. new ways of interacting with things. But it's, it's having the, the gumption to go in there and start changing rather than sort of living your life as this kind of like, well, anxiety is a life sentence. I'm, I'm never yeah. going to get rid of it because yeah. I've tried every type of, you know, I've heard this so many, so many times. I've tried so many different types of therapy and nothing's really worked. And I said, well, have you ever tried somatic therapy or internal therapy <laughs> systems? It's like, well, no, yeah. I haven't, you know, but I've seen my psychiatrist and my psychologist and, and we're doing yeah. CBT. And it's like, CBT will help you cope, but it's not going to help you heal. I mean, yeah. it will help you heal, but it's not going to create, you know, the ultimate healing that you need. And I think that's part of, you know, what our society really focuses on. We worship the mind and we kind of leave the body behind because we have a lot more references for the mind. We can use language to kind of poke into the mind. Feeling mm -hmm. is, is much more amorphous. And feeling is where healing is to remind, to rhyme something. <laughs> I always appreciate a good rhyme. There you go. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 I'm just like, I think in the last two weeks, I've been really deconstructing healing more than I ever have before mm. and going, I, I thought I figured it out. I thought I figured it out for myself. I right. thought I figured it out as, as a doctor and a psychologist. And I'm like, I got this. I understand the pathway to healing. And I think lately I'm, which I love this phase of anything mm. I, I research. I'm like, I don't think I, I don't think I know anymore. <laughs> or there's something like something's shifting enough right. to like, to, to destabilize the the sense of knowing. And I personally love those moments. It's, it is like doing psychedelics. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Well, we are mind, body, spirit, right? And I think <laughs> medicine specifically is is good at the body. And, mm. you know, the mind, you know, neuroscience, you know, we've made tremendous advances in neuroscience in the last 20 years, but very little of that has actually bled into, using that term, into the clinical <laughs> scenario, right? Yeah. So we know these tracks, we know the pathways, we know the anterior signal that affects the amygdala, blah, blah, blah. But it doesn't really give us a lot of treatment options, knowing these tracks and pathways. 
So it's understanding, you know, that, that we are spirit. There is a, mm. there's a certain amount of, of, you know, just imbuing someone with the, the ability to heal themselves rather than always looking at some sort of parental figure like a doctor or oh, whatever yeah. to heal them. Because I think there is, there's that seduction like, oh, well, this person knows so much, they'll be able to heal me. And I think there is this part of us as children, when we don't get what we need as children, we're always thinking that the parent's going to come back. We always have this mm. unconscious drive. So for some of my patients, and, and this is true for me too, is that I would just not take care of myself because I had this unconscious assumption that one day my dad was going to come back and be the dad that he was supposed to be. Yeah. And I think a lot of us have that. We, we hope that our, our parent is going to come back. And we realize that, as cliche as it sounds, you kind of have to be that parent. And if you're, if you're outsourcing your healing to someone else, you're never really going to get a grasp of it because it has to come from inside of you. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. I mean... I think healing happens in community. I think healing happens in relationship. And, and part of that relationship is the relationship we have with ourselves. And, you know, one of the things that happens in any injury, and I mean, emotional or physical, is that there is some version or level of disconnect, some form of rupture, like you break your arm and you get this inflammatory response. And it's a well-intended, but you are essentially sectioning your arm off from the rest of your body. Mm. You have a heartbreak. You have a similar inflammatory response. There is a guarding that comes up. There's a bracing that is present. And that bracing is a, one of the, one of the uh, symbols of bracing is protection. Mm. And so it's like in, in its best intention, we are fragmenting ourselves and and in the same thing that happens in ruptures in relationships. So absolutely healing happens in relationship. It happens in the the repair to ourselves from self-abandoning ourselves or having to protect ourselves and recognizing the value of intent and still acknowledging the consequences in, in any of these ways in which we have had to fragment or rupture a sense of wholeness or a sense of connection and relationship yeah because what i often tell my anxiety people is that anxiety really results from a mind body separation mm. you know we don't want to go into our body because that's where the pain is so we go up into our heads mm. and we overthink and over worry and ruminate and it's also an adult self child self separation as well mm. so to me like the healing is pulling your mind and body back together. So nutrition, things like, you know, yoga, breath work, all that kind of stuff too. But just really finding that younger version of you and really seeing them, hearing them, loving them, understanding them and understanding that, you know, the things that they did that they weren't proud of or whatever were reactions to try to get love, try to get connection. Because this whole thing about fawning, you know, this sympathetic re uh, reaction to fawning, uh, and Gordon Newfeld talks about this. He, he says mm -hmm. that all anxiety is separation anxiety, for one, which I, you know, I believe there's there's, there's a separation within yourself, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. it's it's finding that connection mm -hmm. with yourself that allows you to kind of heal through this and become and and engage that prefrontal cortex and and use that neuroplasticity to start thinking about yourself in a different way. And just being aware 
that there's disparate parts of you. You know, there's the adult, mm -hmm. there's the child, there's the mind, there's the body. And how can you bring those back into connection? So mm -hmm. with your anxious patients, Scott, mm -hmm. what, what are the things that you use to kind of help them with anxiety? Yeah, the first thing that comes to mind was a body metaphor that I've often used, which I say, like, what if anxiety and the sensation of it, so this the signaling of it that you're mm -hmm. experiencing, the like the fast-paced breathing, the rapid thoughts, all of that was a was the telephone ringing of your body waiting for you to pick it up and listen. And, and so like reframing anxiety as a signal of trying to, it has been significant, I found, of going, oh, so I'm not reacting to my reaction or I'm not mm -hmm. reacting to my anxiety. Rather, mm -hmm. I'm utilizing that as a positive symbol to then attune deeper into myself. And I found that to be really powerful for folks because a lot of times we have anxiety to our anxiety. Yes. <laughs> you that's know, panic, like that's basically what nightmare. panic attacks. That's what yeah. panic attacks are. Yeah. 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 It just cycles on itself. Right. Yeah. And it's like, uh, that's what I really found interesting about being a physician and, and dealing with people <laughs> with panic attacks is the first couple of times they have panic attacks, they're not panicked. They said, oh, you know, mm -hmm. I felt this really lightheaded feeling mm -hmm. and I, I felt really mm -hmm. strange. Like I couldn't, mm -hmm. you know, I couldn't feel my feet properly. And then I thought, what if I'm having a stroke? What if this is a heart attack? Then, that's revving. That's, that's revving. Yeah, exactly. And that's when, that's when it goes out of control. Yeah. And it's so intense, especially mm -hmm. when you have it, especially when you have panic attacks as a young person, you know, it's, and you don't have that, that resilience and capacity yet to really understand that this is just a temporary situation of your nervous system. Mm -hmm. It really freaks them out. And the, 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 the fear is so great that they're afraid so much of having another panic attack, mm -hmm, you know, and mm -hmm. often what I would do with people is I would give them, you know, a, a couple of tablets of benzodiazepine, like Ativan or Xanax or whatever, just to take when they would have it. And then often mm -hmm. all they would need is they just knew they had it in their pocket. Yeah, They just knew that they had something that would, that would actually calm this down and it wasn't going to go on forever. And it was the fear of the fear. And anxiety yeah. is, is a lot of that as well. It's just, it's getting trapped in your head rather than going into your body and actually, mm. yeah, this hurts, this pain, this solar plexus pain that I have, this is uncomfortable, mm. but I can handle it. And I mm -hmm. think that's where the real healing part of this has come from. It's like, oh, here it is. My, mm. my natural reaction is to go up into my head and start ruminating and start worrying. But what if I just stayed with the pain? Mm -hmm. And Kathy Kane has this great thing called objecting without contracting, mm -hmm. you know, where she says there's this little and there's this little squeezing, there's this little resistance that, that happens in my chest. And, and a lot of my patients feel this too. And it's like, can you just object to this? Can you not like it, but not resist it, like not push against it, not contract around it? Because I believe that this initial contraction, this little is what starts the cascade. And if you can consciously not get trapped into that early, quick like contraction and stay with it, even though it hurts, that's when you start processing it. That's when you start metabolizing it. And then you get this feeling of anxiety in your body. And you're like, oh, I don't like this, but I can handle it. Now, mm -hmm. initially, you, you can't handle it. It's, it. it's overwhelming. This is the case with me. Is like It was just overwhelming. But yeah. over the course of time of going back into that feeling and allowing myself to feel it and staying mm -hmm. with it 
and then going into the the counter vortex you know finding mm -hmm. a place in my body that wasn't mm -hmm. you know feeling this way and pendulating back and forth between the two among other uh, techniques but i just really found it the people that i find that do best with anxiety are the ones that can tolerate that uncomfortable physical sensation because yeah. that physical sensation is your younger self mm. yeah yeah and and there's something as you're talking about that that really reminds me to say like there like anxiousness is a normal feeling totally. too like totally. you know like when we downgrade it to like i'm anxious cool tell me like get curious mm. with it so if anxious might mean like, I don't feel so secure in what I'm going to do, or I don't know if I have the skill sets to navigate it. There's a, there's an uncertainty about what's to come and how to best, and how to best be with it. And like, that's just a reframe technique, but it, yeah. it allows me to go, okay, I'm having a normal feeling. Like I, I feel anxious at times. Like, mm. I don't know if this is going to go well. But I, I rarely have the anxiety of the anxiety because I'm like, I, I really normalize and go to myself, yeah, anxiousness means that like, I, I take a step back and I go, okay, what do I not feel secure or clear in my, my skill sets or my capacity to be mm -hmm. with this in? Mm -hmm. And I'm like, okay, there's a, like, I have this big event coming. There's a lot of people. I haven't right. been around this many people in a long time. I don't remember. <laughs> I get you, baby. If I, I have feel the it. Capacity. I feel you. Yeah. Like the social bandwidth, the social battery. Right. I'm like, I, I don't know. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, well, think back for a moment. When was the last time I felt like I had a, a big social battery? All right. I was around this many people 10 years ago. Hmm. All right. So I know it's there. I, maybe it's not practiced, but I know I have some history with it. What's it like to take that old sense? And just apply it to the, the 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 future memory, so the projection of what's to come. I'm like, okay, I feel a little better. Now, it's when I get to that event, I might still feel anxious, but I have at least built up some capacity because I haven't been pre-gaming myself with a flood of of anxiety. <laughs> right, and you don't go into this. It doesn't snowball. As far as that goes, yeah. I mean, I did I did stand up for ten years as a yeah. professional comic and toured with Yuck Yucks in 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 Canada <laughs> and that kind of thing. And if I wasn't feeling anxious before I opened that curtain, I knew it wasn't going to be a very good set. <laughs> I so know you exactly. have to have that. Yeah, but I think uh -huh. you know, anxious people overgeneralize mm -hmm. excitement a lot of the time. People say anxiety, excitement, and anxiety are the same thing. They're not, mm -hmm. uh, but they have enough overlap. That people. they can trigger each other, especially if you've been potentiated or sensitized to have an anxious nervous system. And then your confirmation bias kicks in, which mm -hmm. is basically, okay, I'm going to, I'm just before I'm going on stage, it's like, oh, this is going to go terrible. They're, they're a younger <laughs> crowd. They're going to hate me. You know, this, so you, you get this confirmation. Your brain is this meaning making, make sense machine. So when you feel this angst, your mm. brain has to, it has to get a story. It's got to do something with that. And what I've learned is that, no, you don't have to. You can just stay in your body. You can put your hand on it. You can breathe into it. You can stay with it. You can enjoy the pain. Like that's one of the things that, that I think has really helped me get past anxiety is learning how to enjoy that pain because my periaqueductal brain does start boosting out endorphins and enkephalins and that kind of thing. So mm -hmm. again, it's our, it, it is a cognitive reframe on some level, but it's really about 
allowing yourself to feel like allowing yourself because you if you never actually allow yourself to feel it you're always going to be afraid of it and you're never going to be able to metabolize it and then your confirmation bias is always going to look for a reason why you feel this way because it's so uncomfortable to stay in your body you shoot up into your head which is what you did as a child and you will ride that that program until the wheels fall off and the wheels do fall off mm. they do so this event, Scott, where is it? What is it? Can people get involved with it? Like, can they find it? Yeah, we still, it's sold out live, but we are also live streaming it and it will be on the Embodied Lab. So the okay. .embodylab.com. And you can, you know, attend to it live or watch it after Sewers for Life. And I, again, I'm really excited to like enter into this in a few weeks with just like a, a more openness than I ever felt around what is healing as opposed to like this confirmed idea and thesis totally. to which I have written many of around yes. the subject. Yes. And it's an amazing lineup too. Like you have yeah. Gabor Mate and Bessel van der Kolk and, mm -hmm. and Peter Levine, like the heavy hitters in, mm -hmm. in therapy for sure. So the I'm sure hitters. it will be an amazing event. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and, it's such a uh, funny idea to I know. like we think of to take that sort of baseball analogy right. or that baseball reference and apply it to like trauma healing <laughs> a thousand percent yeah but i, I, so, I love it <laughs> so how do people find you scott how, your book is addicted to trauma mm -hmm. and and addicted to yeah. drama Addicted yeah, to yeah, drama. Yeah. I always, yeah. I always get it mixed up. I always get it mixed up. Yeah, addicted to drama, yeah. and we and how can people find you? the drama to avoid our trauma. Is, exactly. So addicted to drama. Yeah, uh, yeah. I'm on socials at Dr. Scott Lyons on Instagram. L y o n s. Yeah. L y o n s. Yeah. Yep. And on, I, I hear I'm on TikTok as well. Okay. And I hear through the grapevine. And at my website is drscottlyons.com. And my podcast is another place to find me, The Gently Used Human, which you have been on, been on. which was a great yes. episode. Thank you. <laughs> and The Embody Lab is another place you can find me, which is my online platform for somatic education and therapy accessible to everyone mm. in any profession. Well, thanks, Scott. And thanks yeah. so much for all your work, right? <laughs> well, like uh, you. You list, your list of, of accomplishments is great. Your, your background is amazing. And I think you've got this really wonderful combination of art and science to you. The oh. ability to kind of, because you've been there, right? And I think the people that are the best teachers are the ones that have been there themselves. And yeah. have kind of said, this is how I find my way out. Yeah. So, you know, thanks, man. I, I really <laughs> appreciate your work. I appreciate the dedication that you, you have put into it. And I hope that you get a bit of a rest coming up over the next little while because you're going to get more and more and more popular. So you're going to have to learn to be addicted to your own kind of drama and be able to kind of, you know, just look at like, how much do I have to, how much do I have to put into my work and how much do I have to put into my social life? And I think mm. that you've done a great job of, you know, kind of managing the success as it's coming and you're just going to get more and more. So, so congratulations. So sweet. Good luck with the event. Thank and you. And hopefully we'll talk again in the future very soon. Absolutely. Thank you, my friend. Anytime, Scott. Bye for now.